The Rwando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit Rwando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. If you're a man that dates women, you've probably noticed that things tend to move a lot more smoothly in intimate relationship when the man, yourself, is in the more masculine role, uh, embodying those testosterone-correlated characteristics, and the woman is in what we would call the feminine role, oxytocin-driven characteristics or estrogen-driven characteristics, if you will. Uh, This is not to say that anyone should be one way or another, but in a relationship between a man and a woman, an intimate relationship between a man and a woman, everyone seems to be a lot happier, particularly in in intimate moments when people take on the characteristics that they're kind of designed to have. Now, uh, a problem that a lot of guys, a challenge that a lot of guys will face is that now more than ever, women have very strong masculine sides. Many women, for very good reason, have to take on uh, testosterone-driven characteristics to survive in the world, to be successful, to be secure and take care of themselves. However, this obviously puts a bit of a strain on sexually polarized relationships. And even a lot of women that I speak to and have worked with, they love being their masculine or testosterone-driven self in their business life, uh, in their working life, and being an independent woman in the world. But when it comes to the moments that they don't want to be independent, the moments they want to be close to a man, uh, be in a more receptive state, it does put a challenge or a strain on the more intimate part of a relationship. Uh, So in this episode, we're going to speak about, from the man's perspective, or what a man can do to help his woman or help the woman he's relating to enter her feminine. Because for a lot of women, too, it is a bit of a challenge. Even women who want to enter their feminine because they've become so used to being in their masculine role, being embodying testosterone-driven characteristics, because they have to in, in much of uh, life, it sometimes becomes very challenging to turn it off or switch it off in, say, the bedroom or in uh, deep emotional moments or times where she really wants to be or both parties want to be interdependent rather than completely separate, independent, consumerist units. So the first thing here is that as a man, and this, is, this goes for both sides of the equation, but I'll speak from the male side because that's the side that I feel I can speak for. Uh, there are many things that you can do to increase the polarity from your end, which would inspire her to feel comfortable and natural in embodying her feminine characteristics. Um, a lot of advice around this stuff comes from kind of a manipulative, almost Machiavellian role, as if you're somehow tricking her into her feminine. I. Uh, whether that's effective or not, I don't even care because it's just uh, it's a uh, inefficient and uh, needlessly competitive or needlessly antagonistic way to view sexual polarity. Most women would feel good being in their feminine, just as most men feel good being in that masculine role. So, of course, uh, this whole episode is touching on the first maxim from episode 109 on the five and a half guiding principles for men, which, of course, is polarity. If you didn't catch that. Uh, I gave a few principles uh, that I used to make major decisions or organize my life. The first one was in intimate, rela- in intimate relationships, always increase polarity. In a close relationship, in your life partnership with your wife, your girlfriend, whomever, uh, there's almost in almost every situation, there is everything to gain and almost nothing to lose by increasing polarity. And to make it a more general statement, I would say, to the degree that you want to be intimate with a given woman, 
is the degree that sh you should be sexually polarized. I mean, that is what, you know, the north and south poles of magnets are what uh, uh, stick together, not two strong north poles. Anyway, many analogies we use. And this episode is partly inspired by one of the threads uh, started the Masculine Underground Facebook group. So thanks to everyone who participated in that. Um, and if you're not in the Masculine Underground group and you want to participate in great discussions on these topics, make sure to search for Masculine Underground yeah, Masculine Underground in Facebook, uh, or type into your browser forum.masculineunderground.com. <clears throat> so this is a topic I've thought about a lot throughout my life because I have, at least when it comes to serious partnerships, I've always been drawn to stronger women. I with, uh, I mean, with just like physical attraction, I'm into all kinds of women. I've been into all kinds of women. But when it comes to like, you know, settling down, domesticating, thinking about family, or in any way like aligning my life path with a woman, I've been drawn to stronger women. And I don't know if it's a personal personality trait or it just makes sense, you know, like if you're going to build something with someone, it helps if that person can also carry some of their own weight. Uh, you know, um, I mean, I personally have liked women that can be counted on rather than being helpless. And uh, my current partner, my love of my life, Nalaya, uh, I really love that she's a strong woman and that I can count on her for things and she's not fragile. You know, she's not, I don't have to constantly uh, check on her to make sure she's okay. Um, I've actually, <laughs> I was speaking to a friend about things I liked about her and, and we went in a direction, I don't know if she would find this flattering, but I was basically like, oh yeah, she's the type of wife you could take on a war campaign, <laughs> right? Like I was thinking like in like Game of Thrones style, if I was, uh, what's the oldest guy in the Stark? Uh, Rob Stark or something, going on a battle campaign, he brought his wife with him. I mean, you know, they all did. There's a point, actually, this is a bit from the History of Masculinity, which is my series that'll be coming out eventually. Uh, for a long time throughout history, um, uh, armies took their entire families with them. Like prior to King Philip, who's Alexander's father, European armies, it was the, kind of the norm to have these huge baggage trains like a, an army campaign would basically be like a, a moving city on wheels where maybe you'd have like 50,000 soldiers but then you'd also have 50,000 non-combatants like their wives their children their servants uh, obviously like other kinds of support staff um, but King Philip uh, one of his major advancements was that he was like wait wait let's not bring the wives and kids and that'll make us move a lot faster and we won't have to spend so much on food which seems like Seems like an obvious thing from a modern day perspective. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. Uh, I've, I've, I've always been drawn to strong women. The thing, however, what makes someone emotionally strong, especially in our modern consumerist society, is someone who can basically uh, fight if they have to. Someone who, I mean, maybe not literally, but someone who has like that like kind of testosterone-driven edge. That's kind of what we associate with strength. So many of uh, this type of woman, uh, which I think is a great type of person if you're thinking of life partnership, tends to have a strong masculine side as well, right? And uh, just to go off on a small divergence, this is actually um, also part of the, uh, the History of Masculinity podcast. <clears throat> um, socially monogamous species, this is, I'm referring to mammals, but also birds. Birds are more monogamous than mammals overall. I think like 90% of birds are monogamous, whereas 90% of mammals are polygynous. Um, 
humans are socially monogamous. And one one bit of evidence for this, other than you know, obviously culture can go in different directions, but one bit of, bit of evidence of this is uh, in our in our bodies. Actually, um, monogamous species uh, tend to have uh, reduced sexual dimorphism. One of the reasons is that in a monogamous species, uh, there's a uh, species tend to be monogamous when the offspring requires a lot of parental investment. So like if you ever saw the movie March of the Penguins with Morgan Freeman, like, spoiler alert, but like uh, it's a lot of effort for a penguin, uh, a penguin egg to become a, a surviving penguin. Like it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of factors going against penguins. They're really troopers. And it really requires two strong parents coordinating together and being able to take on the elements together for that for the offspring to have a chance at survival. Uh, so such uh, species tend to select for larger females. You will notice that obviously men are, are bigger than women on average, but not that much. Like we're actually pretty, cl- compared to other species, we're pretty close in size. Uh, men are slightly bigger or males are slightly bigger. Um, and actually bring us back to a little bit closer to our, our main topic here. There was a... Um, there was a, an article I read, I think it was in Vice, it was a while ago, it was one of those types of magazines, but they, they were referencing a real study of how someone, um, some team compared uh, Playboy centerfolds, like the Playboy Playmate of the Year, year by year, with how the economy was doing in the United States that year. And they found with some uh, like high correlation that the better the economy was doing, so like the more comfortable everyone was, uh, the more uh, resource abundant everyone was feeling, the more soft and frail and small uh, the Playboy centerfold was. Uh, and in, in years where the economy wasn't doing so well and people were all stressed and a little nervous and like, like kind of more in survival mode, the Playboy centerfold tended to be uh, bigger and stronger and more muscular and just stronger looking. And the uh, conclusion that was somewhat loosely drawn was that when men feel... Uh, super resource abundant and there's no challenges and they're comfortable they're maybe drawn to a more soft wife whereas or soft uh, th- their image of a perfect woman is a little soft I mean if you if I mean the, the assumption is that uh, the Playboy centerfold was somehow representative of people's ideal body of that time <clears throat> so we have a bit of a sore throat today I should feel like my uh, lymph nodes are a little swollen but Let's press on. So it's just this idea that, you know, uh, when life is challenging, you want a stronger woman. But the, the, the challenge, though, coming back to our original point, is that stronger women tend to have a strong masculine side. So it becomes a bit of a challenge. And if you look at other stereotypes, uh, like when you see, like, think of, like, the nerd nerds are into uh, uh, super quiet Asian women who don't speak English barely, right? Like, or I mean, you actually, if, if we're honest, like, if we just see... Uh, men with different kinds of women, very often, most of us, I, I would assume, kind of judge a man's personality by the type of woman he's drawn to. Like if you do see a guy who's, who looks normal or whatever, but then he's with like a woman who barely speaks English and like is super quiet, like my assumption, my judgment, if I'm honest, is like, oh, well, this guy either uh, can't get uh, a confident woman, so he's choosing someone who you know, he can kind of order around or he's like really not masculine. So in order for him to feel masculine, he's picking like the most absolute submissive woman because the bar for masculinity is so low. 
I know it's a judgment. Obviously, it's not true all the time, but I think most of us have these kinds of assumptions. Whereas if you see like a super confident, desirable, beautiful woman with an average looking guy, what is the assumption? Either he's got a lot of money <laughs> or he's just the friggin' man, right? Like we, we often, uh, yeah, it's just a natural thing because you know, anyway, I could go off on that some other time. Um, but anyway, back to our main point. It, it can become a challenge, especially with what I would think are, are more desirable women, especially when it comes to partnership. It can be a challenge uh, maintaining that polarity when you're with someone who has a very strong masculine side. Uh, there can sometimes be a battle. There can sometimes be a fight between uh, your masculine, your masculinity, or your masculine side, and her masculine archetype, her testosterone-driven characteristics. <clears throat> so going back to this original point, the first thing to believe if you don't believe it, right, if you're experiencing this challenge, you at least need to believe that there is some part of her. If she is drawn to you and you do have your if and you do personally feel better being masculine, there must be some part of her that wants to be feminine. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to be uh, dogmatic because uh, I've been accused of being a what's the word biological reductionist. Um, but I do believe nature is the starting point of all our behaviors and we are all happier when we can align with our nature rather than go against it. Just go back to the fact that uh, women get pregnant. It's one of the most uh, beautiful parts of the human experience that women can have babies. And actually, one of the, uh, I mean, one of my big criticisms of a lot of the ideology thrown around by feminism is this idea of like, oh, women should be CEOs more than they should be mothers. Like, yes, obviously women have been oppressed and like, for thousands of years and people have been, uh, you know, in different cultures, women have not had the freedom to do anything but have children. I'm not saying that should be the case. However, what a twisted world we are in that how far have we gotten from our nature that we think somehow it is better to work long hours and be in a corner office uh, leading a corporation that dumps pollution in, onto the earth rather than make a child, make a human being with your body. Like, what? A, anyway, we'll get, we'll get into that in, in a second. <clears throat> So it's going to be a challenge, right? And uh, so the, the main thing, the main, uh, the most, the overarching principle when it comes to cooperatively getting your woman to enter feminine, right? Because this is not a war, right? It sometimes feels like a war, especially if, if you're butting heads with her masculine side. But the key is trust. If a woman can trust you to hold down the masculine role in the given relationship or situation. And if we're talking about a man dating a woman, talking about in the relationship, if she can trust you to hold down the masculine traits, then she will willingly and eagerly surrender. And when we speak about the masculine traits, I actually love the, um, the terminology Jack Donovan uses. Jack's been on the podcast. He's written a, a bunch of great books, such as The Way of Men. And he has this, uh, he uses this image of the perimeter. Right? The masculine in a given society, in a group, in a relationship, is the perimeter of the organism, of the superorganism, or the, of the tribe, if you will. And the feminine is what's inside. So if we use, if we, if we use like the amoeba, an amoeba analogy, the, the masculine is the membrane, uh, and the feminine are the organelles inside. Uh, the, the masculine is what defines the limit between that survival unit, the, the, the couple, let's say, or the family, and the outside world, right? It's what defends them from the, the it, it defends them from uh, attackers. It's what invites food in. You know, if it, we're talking about hunting and paleo gather uh, paleo uh, hunter gatherer societies, <clears throat> and the feminine are the 
domestic traits. And I know perhaps this can be a controversial statement to some, but this is this is just this is what it is. Oxytocin driven traits are for domestic times. It's for times of peace. Uh, Testosterone driven traits are for competition, which you know when we're talking about survival units means dealing with the outside. So this could refer to society. It can you know any any superorganism. So if you want to maintain uh, or increase polarity in a relationship, then you essentially have to outmasculine her masculine side, which means your masculine archetype has to prove to her masculine archetype that they are not needed. Now it's good to understand uh, before we go into technical stuff or how tos. It's good to understand why women have a masculine side in the first place. And you know, if we're, if we're taking on this Jungian perspective. We all have both sides, right? Uh, Jung had the concept of the anima in men, a man's feminine side, the animus in women, a woman's masculine side. Uh, of course, as I mentioned in, in older archetype episodes, um, he conceptualized this in the early 1900s. Uh, world was different. People viewed things differently. Psychology was still new. I wonder what he would say nowadays. I would bet he would maybe say we both have an animus and anima, but the animus is stronger in masculine men and the anima is stronger in feminine women. Or maybe he would have categorized it differently. Either way, we all have both. I mean, women produce testosterone, not as much as, as men do. Men produce oxytocin, right? Like, I find cat photos cute as well. I don't have the same reaction that most women do. I don't, I don't make squealy noises and go, ah, but like, you know, I, I certainly have an oxytocin release when I see something cute. Like, I, I have a nurturing side as well. Almost everyone does. Um, so it's good to understand why women have uh, a stronger masculine side than before, because essentially what you have to do is dominate her masculine side, consensually dominate her masculine side. You have to prove to her masculine side that your masculine side is more willing and able to handle the perimeter than hers is, right? Because if you think of, uh, if you think of our archetypes as members of society. So if you're, if you're uh, in a relationship with a woman, you have your masculine side and your feminine side. She has her masculine side and her feminine side. So it's like a, it's a relationship of four. And actually, uh, Carl Jung called this the quaternio. quaternio. It's uh, the four elements of a two-person relationship. And like, there's actually six relationships between these four elements. Um, you can look it up if you want. There's diagrams. Uh, and you should be aware of all these relationships. But essentially, if you have the society of four archetypes and there's a perimeter that has to be made and there's internal duties that have to be fulfilled, uh, who should do what, right? The most masculine should handle the perimeter and the most feminine should handle the inside. But what happens is that in the modern day, especially, a lot of women, a lot of women's male archetype, their animus, sees the, the masculinity in other men, in, in these emotionally castrated men that seem to be the norm these days, and like, well, I don't trust you to handle, like, hold down the fort. Like, my masculine side is way more capable than you to handle the perimeter. So that's what she, she, she ends up, and obviously this is like a subconscious, sometimes, negotiation that happens. But then, you know, anytime, anytime you see a woman uh, wanting to wear the pants in the relationship or do these things rather than sink into receptivity is because she doesn't trust the guy to hold things down. So, because uh, women can only enter femininity willfully, consensually, uh, when they can see that you are willing, more willing and able to. So the, the first piece is the ability, right? Like if she doesn't trust that you have the competence or strength or courage 
to uh, hold down the fort, well, she's not going to let her guard down, right? She's not going to want to be pregnant with you, even if, she, even if consciously thinks she thinks is a good idea. Her body's not going to feel like it can surrender. Because all of this happens on an instinctual level, right? I mean, I've, I've spoken, like, I don't coach women anymore, but when I used to, when I, when I used to focus more on sexuality, I would meet a lot of women who would have the same issue. Like, it would be called anorgasmia, but I think that's uh, uh, not the right... Um, I think labeling a, a term on it is not the right way to go about it or view it. But a lot of women, and this is, I think this is a very common experience, that a lot of women can have an orgasm, their sexuality works fine when they're by themselves, but when they're with a man, even with a man they like or a man that they think is really hot or like a guy they really want to sleep with, they can't seem to have an orgasm with a guy. And assuming all of her parts work, assuming that she can do it on her own, this almost always comes down to trust. Her... And even though if she, she consciously like, I want to trust this guy, I think he's great, her subconscious doesn't trust him. So her subconscious never lets her nervous system chill out enough in bed, even if things are feeling great and looking great and being great, her nervous system won't chill out enough for her to have that orgasmic response. It's just her body. I mean, this is maybe a bit of a hippie theory, but, you know, I've, I've met a lot of couples who've had trouble conceiving. I think there's something like this also, right? If, if she's still in her testosterone different mode, if some part of her uh, subconscious is still checking out the perimeter, of course it's not going to uh, relegate resources to pregnancy or, or being in that uh, super vulnerable state because obviously physical pregnancy is perhaps the most vulnerable a human being can possibly be. Um, yeah, anyway. Uh, so anyway, the, these, these biological mechanisms are what determine these instinctive patterns or these instinctive behaviors. Uh, pregnancy being, as I said, the most vulnerable um, uh, state a woman can be in or any person can be in. Uh, now, hormonally, it's important to note that obviously men produce a lot more testosterone than women. We produce it in our testes, but also our adrenals and perhaps our brains sometimes. Uh, women produce testosterone by their adrenal glands. So women are in masculine mode all day. If they work a corporate job or work or run a business or they're doing something, they're constantly in masculine mode. They're making decisions. They're seeking out the perimeter. They're doing all the things that are correlated with testosterone production. They tend to be super overtaxed. Uh, a lot of these women, their adrenals are overtaxed, and it becomes very easy to uh, chill out and enter. And like, you know, I see this a lot in, uh, I've seen this a lot in women I've coached where they are really successful women, they're running businesses, they're, they're doing things great uh, in life and they, they love what they're doing in their independent woman life, but then they have trouble turning it off or turning it down when they're with a guy, so they're masculinating every guy they're with. Uh, this is not their fault, of course. It's no one's fault. Uh, some some uh, responsibility can be put on these men that they don't have the backbone to face off with a woman's masculine side. But that's you know neither here nor there. It's an uh, unfortunate thing that happens in a sexual relationship that would otherwise be intimate and fulfilling. <clears throat> so real briefly, I think it's good to understand the reasons why, because I, I, would see, I see this in the red pill community. One of the things I really don't like about the community, even though I, I agree with most of the principles that come out of the red pill community, is this idea that uh, intersexual dynamics is some sort of war between men and women. That somehow, like men and women are in competition, and even in married red pill, you see like this kind of this tone or this like assumption or, or uh, presupposition, if you will, that like you have to like be at war with your wife for her 
for you to have a happy relationship. And like you got yeah, guys being overly on edge with their women because they think that somehow they need to like constantly be battling for supremacy or dominance, which is like kind of an unfortunate way to think of living your day-to-day married domestic life. But if you can really understand the woman's side, I think it allows you to have a little more empathy, not feel like they're the enemy, and like think more of this as a co-op game, which just makes everything easier. So once upon a time, in paleo hunter-gatherer times, uh, there was a pretty clear sexual division of labor uh, because we were, you know, we were just one step away from the not sapient animals that we descended from. Uh, women obviously got pregnant, men did not, so that was an obvious uh, div- division of labor there. Uh, that's why we have some dimorphism, even though we're not a super super uh, dimorphic species, because uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of evidence in this in like. Um, in pagan or animist religions, yes, they obviously uh, celebrated the god of war or whatever, de- of, of, you know, these hyper-masculine traits, you know, war, like good warriors kept them alive, right? If they didn't have good warriors, they got wiped out, which is why in my History of Masculinity series, the first season focuses purely on warfare and how warfare developed, or uh, warfare inspired what we call cultural masculinity. All masculine traits came off of this warrior thing because more the men were relegated to protecting the perimeter. That was their job because the women were often pregnant. Whereas they also celebrated the the beauty of women or the the amazing part of women. A lot of these uh, re- like early animist pagan religions uh, were either equally um, masculine and feminine worshiping, or a lot of them worshipped like Gaia or like the or Mother Earth, like this beauty. Uh, in women, this incredible miracle that women can make humans in their body. It's like, what an incredible thing. It was their superpower. So like men had to hold up their end of things and be warriors, essentially. Um, now, agriculture shifted a lot of this because instead of being like these close-knit bands, uh, we start to separate. We, there was an introduction of scarcity in labor because that's what happens when you can hoard wealth. The hunter-gatherers couldn't hoard wealth because things would spoil immediately. Um, so it just changed a, a lot. I mean, I, have to, I mean, I go deeper into this in the history of masculinity. But instead, instead of like uh, the survival unit being a large tribe, the survival unit was able to shrink. Eventually, this led to nuclear families because, uh, yeah, why should you hoard wealth for everyone else, all of your cousins and neighbors, when uh, you can just hoard your wealth for your genetic line, your immediate uh, your immediate offspring and your your partner, your mate. This, of course, uh, developed generation by generation in, in what we might call patriarchy because when you introduced agriculture, you introduced economics and wealth, you introduced uh, scarcity that never left, right? For hunter-gatherers, they experienced scarcity at times, but they experienced bun- abundance at times, which was essentially they experienced more food and resources than they can consume that day. With agriculture, you could hoard wealth so you never got to that full point, right? You never got to the point where uh, you had, no one's ever like, oh, we have too much grain in storage or we have too much money, right? That, that never would happen. Like money, uh, money always, there's like an, the nature of money is that there's always a scarce, there's always scarcity with it, right? No one's ever like, oh, there's too much. Like you never get full on money the way you might get full on bananas, right? Um, so anyway, because of the scarcity, because testosterone driven characteristics, thrive in scarcity, whereas more feminine characteristics thrive in abundance. Since there was really never a switch back to abundance, obviously male traits uh, inspired society or had society develop by men for men more greatly. 
This is what people call the patriarchy. I don't think at any point men got together like intentionally trying to impress women, but as a society driven uh, developing around scarcity, of course, it's going to favor people with testosterone-driven characteristics, and it's going to develop more uh, for such people, and which is what has call, uh, caused perhaps this cultural oppression of women over many thousands of years. Feminism obviously was a, uh, a pushback on that because uh, by the 1900s, uh, essentially the patriarchy or society or the masculine side of society had in many ways let women down. Whereas in our hunter-gatherer times, there was a division of labor, but it was interdependent, it was for each other. With this inbred scarcity in society, uh, masculine traits kind of like developed on their own, uh, creating this huge separation and like women eventually became more like property and it just became a not good uh, situation. Whereas in earlier times, and I know I, I probably romanticize the stone age a little bit more than should so perhaps take this with a you know take my opinion as an opinion um but at one point in human history things were a lot closer to inter interdependence and like women were more served by male traits and behavior um and this is stuff i go deep into in the history of masculinity like the roots of honor and why honor is a masculine trait etc essentially in by by the 1900s it was clear that uh, the patriarchy in many ways had let women down, right? Like it wasn't actually beneficial for a woman to be in her receptive state as it was as kind of nature designed us. Uh, it was actually kind of a, a raw deal. Like she was still being pregnant, being in a vulnerable position, but not uh, she being women, uh, but not really being taken care of the way that uh, there was more of a give and take in, in the paleo era. <clears throat> so obviously it was a backlash. And uh, the most logical thing from that perspective. And the most logical thing from a uh, masculine trait incepted society where everyone kind of assumed masculine values, even women, even future feminists, uh, this idea that, well, women need to be, uh, uh, women need to compete in a consumer society as well. Uh, because the dominant ideology of the last many centuries, the dominant, like it's so, it's so dominant that it's not even an ideology. Most people don't think of it as an ideology. It's just a set of assumptions most of us have. Uh, is consumerism. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari speaks about this uh, quite a bit in Sapiens on how consumerism, as opposed to like the early societies that were based on clans or tribes or at least some sort of kin bonding, because once upon a time we all needed to band together if we were going to have any chance of survival. Nowadays, in a consumerist society, the, the, the highest ideology or the highest, um, the, the goal that most people strive for, even unconsciously in a consumerist society, is that hoard as much money as you can, right? Get it. I mean, the prescription to most young people, I think this maybe will change with the, the COVID era that we're in. But prior to COVID, like pretty much every young person assumed, uh, get a high paying job, Hoard a lot of wealth so you can live in a nice box, a one-person box in a nice city, in a nice building stacked on top of many, many other boxes. And if you have enough of these survival tickets, if you have enough money, you can exchange with the collective, you can exchange with you know, these uh, non-human entities, corporations or whatever, services, uh, goods and services for every one of your human needs. In the paleo era, everything was kind of, uh, everything was met within the tribe with people just like providing for each other. In a consumer society, you give yourself money and then you can trade money for love and connection and comfort and entertainment and all that stuff, right? There has to be that exchange. Of course, you know, there's negatives with that. And uh, essentially, 
you know, you couple this with feminism, which was kind of an obvious backlash given that women kind of were getting a raw deal uh, in many ways over the last thousands of years. Well, women should become their own uh, survival units. So like if you see the developments of fe feminism, second wave feminism, like uh, women need a man like a fish need a bicycle was one of the, the phrases. Uh, they've learned essentially by third wave feminism, women have learned to act like men. There's the, like, the idea of fire, fire versus fire, right? That was, uh, that was a, a book written uh, on this topic by a feminist writer. Um, so in, in a consumer society, everyone's trying to be an, uh, an independent unit, and it's the breakdown of interdependency. So this maybe is fine uh, from a, a purely economic standpoint for women, let's say, right? Like in, nowadays, uh, I think almost everyone would agree, even feminists, uh, that women are doing great. You know, girls are doing better in school than boys. There are plenty of women in leadership positions, maybe not as much as maybe feminists, feminists want, but like women are doing pretty great. You know, just just in like the, the expatriate scene in Southeast Asia or, like you know, like the digital nomad scene that I was a part of uh, up until recently. There's a lot of women running their businesses. It's like almost I would I mean, maybe it's about even, but I see a lot of women doing great things with themselves. Uh, but a lot of these same women have issues with their relationships because it's hard for them to feel feminine with a guy when they're so strong and they're masculine. Uh, so essentially... We want to go back to, we're basically trying, I mean, if you're a man who's trying to get a woman into her feminine, trying to get the woman that you're dating into her, uh, her feminine, you're essentially trying to recreate a mutually beneficial interdependence. You're trying to uh, break these two separate uh, perimeters. Like you think of yourselves as two amoebas, two survival units separately. You're trying to break open the perimeter, merge together so that you are the perimeter of this two-person unit and you have these two nuclei inside and she, she's able to surrender and take care of these uh, whatever, whatever the feminine side of things are. Uh, which essentially means, if you think of Jung's Quaternio, you need to out-masculine her masculine archetype. <clears throat> so... How do you expand this perimeter for two? So in healthy polar relationship, as, as I said, you, you're, you're merging into one. And I think, you know, I'm going to make another episode on how to fight with your partner, how to fight with your girlfriend or wife. I think a lot of people don't fight in the right way. I mean, my main principle of, of, of fighting correctly is that even if you're in conflict, even if, you know, conflict happens, obviously, between intimate people, you have to have the underlying assumption that you are one unit and you're, and you're trying to figure this out together. I mean, I see this a lot in couples, like the moment you start to see yourself as disparate entities and you're at war with this other, other side, there's no way you're gonna have a happy resolution, right? But anyway, what will allow her to take, you know, merge her walls with yours or let, let you take over the membrane of the, of the multicellular organism that she'll become is security protecting and provisions, uh, but also emotional security. Like all of this comes down to, when it comes to her uh, subconscious, when it comes down to her nervous system chilling out, her unconscious being like, okay, I can sink into a receptive vulnerable state because he can handle things. It comes down to whether or not she trusts you again to hold down the security, hold down that side. So I'm gonna break this down into three parts or two parts, depending how you look at it. Uh, the first is being, right? There's a lot of uh, techniques and I'll share some things that I do, especially when my woman is challenging me or giving me what uh, some people would call a shit test or a comfort test. I would call them security tests. Anytime you're being tested, that's going to happen. I'm going to talk about that in, in a moment. 
But before we get into techniques, we have to understand that what really matters more than anything else, even if like you use uh, incorrect social techniques or you pick the wrong words or, or, you know, in those moments you do things incorrectly, what matters more than all of that stuff is how she sees you day to day as a person, right? It's not about, you know, in the heat of a moment, you can actually get away with saying stupid stuff sometimes or doing the wrong thing sometimes if she really respects you as a person. And this is where it's like a lot, you see on these forums or when people are asking like these questions, like they'll always have specific instances. A lot of times like guys will like come to me and be like, okay, uh, my girlfriend or the, the woman I'm dating, we we're about to go to dinner and this happened and like, oh, I know I failed this test. Like, what do I do? Like sometimes if you're getting like a big pushback from her masculine side, you, you messed up earlier, right? It's not about that moment. There's, I'm going to share certain technical things, but it's like she already, for whatever reason, doesn't trust you. She doesn't see you in a certain way. And it's actually not about how you're treating her necessarily. It's how she's seeing you living your life. So the most important thing before we get into the nitty gritty is like, are you demonstrating the warrior ethos? Because we think of the perimeter, right? She needs to know that your warrior archetype can handle things better than her. And, you know, if you have more testosterone in you and not to, you know, put things down, put everything down to uh, hormones, but most of our moods and behaviors and, and tendencies come down to our biology, right? Like uh, free conscious will is only a percentage of uh, what we actually do with ourselves or even the thoughts we think, but that's, that's maybe another episode. Um, women are watching how you live life. And uh, she needs to see that when you're living your day-to-day -day life, you are demonstrating the, the, the traits that you are able, first able to hold the perimeter for her and also willing. The ability matters more because uh, in many instances, a woman would be happy to engage sexually with a man who has all of those positive traits, but maybe he's going to leave. That's a whole rock star thing, right? Like she knows he's not going to stick around, but his sperm is so valuable to her that she's still attracted to him. And then, you know, anyway, we, perhaps she'll find someone else to raise a child with her. But in a, in a healthy relationship, we need both, right? It's first demonstrating the ability, right? Because it doesn't matter how willing you are. If you don't have the ability to hold the perimeter, her, her nervous system's not going to chill, right? Her unconscious is not going to be like, oh, I can, I'm safe to like let my guard down and go fully surrendered. She has to see how you're living your life. And this, a lot of this, this goes down to the earlier episode. I think it was one, uh, 110 or 108. I don't know. I think 110. How to be attractive to women. That's essentially what this whole, that whole episode was about, right? There's two main principles of that. Demonstrating masculine traits. Again, showing that you can uh, hold down the masculine side more than she can. And, uh, and individuating. Like finding your purpose. Being your specific kind of competence. Because that's what's going to bring the provisions in. That's what's going to um, prove to her that you're living your life in such a way that you, through your actions, you are the type of guy that she can trust to guide your survival unit, your family into the future. Uh, but in going into tests, right, into going into uh, these moments where she might throw tests at you. First, I want to say it's totally normal and it's not a bad thing if you see your woman's testing you. There's many reasons why a woman can test you, especially early in a relationship. You know, if she's giving you a test, uh, it, it typically means like she's on some unconscious level trying to see if you are long-term relationship material or if she's someone that she can let your guard, her guard down with, right? If she's testing you, whether it's like a, a teasing thing, it's like maybe a little bit mean 
or uh, she's she's being bratty for some reason. Uh, there's many reasons why it could happen, but typically it's not a bad thing, right? Early in a relationship, if it's if it's happening out of nowhere, I'd say it's actually a good thing. She's like now maybe for the first time uh, unconsciously pondering, can we make babies with this guy? Uh, if it happens later, it's going to happen. It's always going to happen, right? Unless you're with a woman who really has like a really low bar for masculinity because she has low self-esteem or like you've picked some woman who like, anyway, you know, I don't mean to be judgmental, but you've picked someone like really... Uh, Anyway, the bar is really low, then maybe you'll never get tested. But if you're with a strong, high-value, high-self-esteem woman, she should test you periodically because it makes sense, right? Like if she, either consciously or unconsciously, knows she has options, knows she can be with many different guys, she wants to make sure she's with the best, which means she has to test you just to see sometimes. If she's testing you a lot, that could mean that she's now wondering or like having doubts. But essentially, it's not a bad thing. So... What the pickup community calls a shit test, I, I would just put this, I would call it a security test because essentially she's trying to test for security. The very first type of security she's trying to test is your emotional security, especially those early tests. I, I think, you know, I think calling them shit tests is, uh, again, it's like t taking this overly anti antagonistic uh, assumption around intersexual dynamics. I mean, I think a lot of things from pickup are mislabeled this way like the one that i always point to is uh the term negging like all of these terms were like come up were made by the guy mystery he's known to have asperger's whatever it is like the guy clearly missed certain nuances when it came to understanding uh, intersexual dynamics he was very good however at viewing the outside superficials like like negging for example a lot of early pickup guys would observe these guys who are naturally good with women they would see guys uh somehow belittling a woman and seeing that she laughed and was more attracted and she and they came up with a conclusion based on observation oh women like it when you belittle them and that's not really the principle right if you could see a little bit under beneath the surface if you could read the situation a little bit more organically you could see i mean negging what has become called negging was essentially teasing teasing has existed forever and what's attractive about teasing is that it demonstrates one, that you're not afraid of her, right? That's that's a thing that no woman wants to be with a guy who's afraid of her, right? So by teasing someone, you're demonstrating, oh, I'm not afraid. But also it's demonstrating that you're showing a high level of attention. If you're just, if you're just like making a, a cookie cutter blanket joke at someone's expense, well, that's not really, that's not, that's not even attractive because uh, you're not really paying attention. Like, you know, uh, effective negs in quotes or effective teasing is when you're really paying attention to her, you're really paying attention to her idiosyncrasies, and you're calling some attention to it in a joking, positive, humorous way, which will make her laugh, because it shows her that you're not afraid of her, but you're also paying really good attention to her. It's like, you're not afraid of her, so you're uh, able to hold the perimeter for her, and you are paying a really close attention to her, which means you're willing. You're, it suggests that you're willing to take care of her if you're willing to pay such close attention to whatever her cute little quirk is that you're now calling attention to and making a joke out of. And this goes beyond just intersexual dynamics. Like I spoke about this in the uh, male bonding episode. One of the ways guys bond is by busting each other's balls and kind of a sign of male friendship is uh, a real male friendship is when two guys can bust each other's balls and they both laugh about it because it's kind of like signaling to the other guy, Hey, I'm willing to suffer at your expense which makes you, us trust each other. It's kind of like mutual, in a way, mutual submission. That's why guys bust each other's balls. They cut each other down. It's like a, it's a way of, of uh, testing for friendship. 
Um, so, uh, so anyway, going back to tests, security tests, when you get a, a security test, as I'm, I'll call it now, uh, the best thing to respond with is always humor. A lot of guys get confused or like a lot of guys uh, fail the test sometimes because, well, one, the, the, the worst way to fail is to just uh, be submissive. Like I'll just give an example to make this uh, a little more concrete. Um, it's actually something that my girlfriend does periodically. <clears throat> I think it's just a tendency she's had uh, or whatever. This is a thing she does. This is her way of testing me sometimes, which is like not in a mean way, not in an angry way, kind of in a playful way. She'll like order me to do something. She'll be like, go sit here, do this or whatever, right? And I know she's not like really ordering me, right? Like we'd be in a bad place if she was really commanding me. Uh, but it's kind of like an, a subconscious test. And the thing is, if I just was like, okay, and I just sat, like let's say she was like, sit here. And I just like went and sat, uh, I would have failed the test. And even though I know she was joking, she knows she was joking. If I responded that way, she would dry up real fast. Like she, like some part of her would no longer feel secure being with a guy who just lets people order him around. But on the flip side, and this is where I think a lot of, you know, uh, uh, antagonistic red pill guys also fail. It's not as bad a failure as just being uh, servile, but like they'll kind of like come at, uh, come at the situation angrily. I, I, I had a friend who was deep in the red pill community and deep in the married red pill community and when his wife would test him, as wives do sometimes, like he would get angry, like, like don't talk to me that way, blah, and it would become a fight. And that's better than being servile, but that's still not good for the relationship, right? Like she's not, she might maybe respect him a little or, or know that he can't be pushed around, but she's not gonna feel safe. Like maybe she'll see that he's able to hold the perimeter, but given that he had this angry reaction towards her, her unconscious is going to be like, well, he's not willing to take care of me. Like, clearly he's angry at me, right? That's not going to make her feel good either. So you have to call things out as they are, but with humor. So just using this example, if my girlfriend says, sit here, I will get up in her face and I'll grab her and I'll maybe I'll pick her up and I'll say, don't tell me what to do in a fun way, right? Uh, and then, you know, and then it doesn't matter what I do from there. Right. Uh, maybe she's telling me to do something that actually I was going to do anyway or is useful to do. Maybe it's, you know, whatever. Maybe we're cooking together and that's like not a, you know, but I don't want one. I don't want her to I don't want to uh, have this reality where she's ordering me around because neither one of us is going to like that. Right. We're, we're both going to feel less polarized and it's not going to be good for our relationship. So I need to call it out. Right. I need to call out that I noticed this. It's not OK but not in an angry way. Like I, I'm also saying it humorously back to her so that it's demonstrating, but we're still on the same team. Like I'm just like giving you a little spank. And sometimes, very often actually, I will literally spank her in fun, of course, uh, in a, perhaps a sexy way to, to again demonstrate I'm not afraid. Spanking is, is a bit of a tangent. I still always be confused at like what so, like what is it about spanking that, that uh, so many women are into? Like why, why is that? Like, and... Uh, one way to look at it without going into like, you know, deep da daddy stuff, which I don't think is actually the right way to look at it, is like uh, it is it is showing like a playful dominance. It is a showing a uh, that you're not obviously for spanking someone, you're not afraid. If you're spanking them on their butt or you're spanking them in a way that you're not actually harming them, it shows that you have the control to that you could do stuff to them that is not good, but you have the control. It's like uh, 
you know, doing jujitsu with a black belt who can do all crazy sorts of stuff with you, break your arms, choke you out, but he's just playing, right? Or she's just playing, right? She's not actually there to harm you, but it's very, it's very obvious that they have that confidence. Or actually, when I've had a lot of puppies, um, a couple of years ago, if you listen to the podcast, I've spoken about them. I, my housemate was fostering puppies, so I was kind of fostering puppies too. And the alpha of the group, we had 10 of them, the alpha was so clearly the alpha because anytime other puppies were like uh, misbehaving, like fighting each other, doing something bad, she would control them. She would either pin them down or grab them by the neck or something like that, you know, or put her teeth on their neck, but she never hurt them. Like she was just demonstrating, I can fuck you up, but I'm not going to because I care about you. And that's the kind of the energy you want to have when, uh, when you're passing a security test, when you're reasserting that you are in the masculine role. And uh, actually... Yeah, and it sometimes sometimes doesn't have to be physical. It doesn't have to be even playfully antagonistic. Sometimes I just call it out in a way that it's clear that I'm not afraid. Like uh, I don't know if this will translate. It's kind of an inside joke between my partner and I, but um, we've kind of labeled her masculine archetype the boy dragon. Right? I've kind of playfully called it that. She didn't like it at first. Um, and you know, if she's like kind of in masculine mode or like it's coming out somehow. Uh, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I see your boy dragon wants to have control of this situation. I'll just call it out, right? And it's always like a little bit of a giggle. Sometimes she punches me in the shoulder. But again, it's like another way of like playfully and humorously kind of calling out what's happening and be like, I, I know that, you know, this, this is not the right dynamic, but not in an angry way, not in an uh, antagonistic way. Uh, so those are ability tests, right? Uh, everything we just spoke about is a type of security test where she's testing your ability, your whether or not you have the competence to hold the perimeter better than she can, because that's what the, the woman wants, right? If, she, if her masculine side is more masculine than your animus, for instance, there's no reason for her to surrender. There's no reason for her to, to uh, switch. And actually, it's an important point, because I could hear the, the, the FAQ or the, the someone thinking this. Uh, can't we have both? Like, yes, of course. All of us do have both masculine and feminine archetypes, anima and animuses, animi, uh, but we can't be in both at the same time, right? You can have, it's actually great, you know, it's great to be able to cry during movies and be able to hold shit down when things need to be tough, but you can't have both, right? You're not going to, you're not, you're not going to be firing, uh, you're not going to be uh, releasing all the oxytocin for all the cuddles while you're at war. Now, those are not good things to have at the same time. So in a given moment, uh, or a given period of time, you have to be in one mode or the other. It is healthy to experience both, which is why an example I've often brought up in archetype episodes is like uh, a lot of men who are so far in the hyper-masculine road all the time, like high-powered CEOs, like they often will hire, let's say, a little Asian woman to stomp on their balls. I mean, obviously that's an extreme, but like a, a lot of uh, dominatrices, their number one client are these super alpha male types because those guys... They're so deep in one archetype that they need a little bit, they need some balance to, to balance it out. So this is important. I'm just throwing this caveat out or this, you know, uh, this out just in case everyone's like, well, why can't we be both? Well, of course we can be both. But when a woman's pregnant, when she's especially in, in, a, in the, you're in the intimate or the sexual side of, a, of an intimate relationship, she has everything to gain by being in her feminine, right? Even if the rest of her life she wants to be in masculine mode, like she's not going to really be able to enjoy the intimate side or the romantic side of her life if, she, if she's not in her feminine and you as a man probably not going to have a very good time if you're in your feminine in a, in a sexual relationship with a woman probably uh, 
Finally, we'll speak about willingness tests, and then we're going to close because I could hear the construction next door starting already. <clears throat> willingness tests are a lot uh, simpler than the ability tests, right? I think most guys uh, mess up in the ability test because that's where men have the insecurity, right? Like, are we even able of meeting her standards? Whereas the willingness part is just, it's kind of just, this is like, you're a strong man who's also a good man. Uh, willingness is what in married red pill they'll call a comfort test. It's different. It's not a, quite a shit test. She's not giving you shit, but she's trying to test to see if you're going to be there for her. Because uh, by the time you're getting a comfort test or what we'll call like a willingness security test, uh, she's uh, she probably already trusts that you have the ability. She already sees you as a strong guy, but maybe she's not sure that you're actually going to stick around with her, right? Maybe you're going to go off and fuck some other woman once she's pregnant or something. That's like the, that's the deep-rooted fear. Like that's the, the worst situation for a human female in the wild, let's say, but also carries into modern day. Like for her to be pregnant with a guy who then leaves, right? Because she needs somebody. Um, at least if there's like a nuclear family. If there's a tribe, maybe it's a little different. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, uh, are you going to be there for her? And... This is another place guys could mess up because some guys will throw out their ability indicators by just demonstrating willingness. Like a lot of guys in, in, a, in a genuine positive effort to show that they're there for their woman, they'll end up becoming supplicating because what's modeled for a lot of us through society is that the way to be nice to someone is to be subservient. This is kind of Nietzschean slave morality that has incepted uh, our society. And it is tricky. It is, it is tricky sometimes uh, to show your woman that you're there for her and you care about her feelings without going into feminine mode, essentially. And because it's one, it's uh, in a similar way of handling ability tests, it's important to be aware, at least, and you don't have to always call it out, but be aware of what reality is. Because in the way that it's tricky for men, you know, this is not, you know, a dig against women at all, but a, a something that a lot of women, especially women who've been wounded in the past, and we've all been wounded from different things, and a lot of our bad behaviors and relationships comes from our wounds, but a lot of women, especially women who are wounded, will do things like creating drama that isn't really necessary or isn't even really, um, I don't want to say isn't real because if you're feeling it, it's a real emotion for you, but they'll create something that, uh, they'll create some sort of drama in themselves to see if you are willing to take care of them. And... Uh, Sometimes you want to be there for her, but this, is, this, is, this can be a trap because if you're always jumping at it, yes, you're demonstrating willingness, but you've, if you become supplicating or bite on every single bit of drama or every single seeming problem that, that seems such like a crisis, that's actually, you're, you're passing the willingness part, but you're maybe failing the ability. Because one of the things that people rely on the masculine for, whether it's you as an individual relying on your masculine side or the woman relying on the man or the, the insides of a society relying on the warriors holding the perimeter is direction. And sometimes you have to tell the truth of like, I, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a phrase that won't be misused, but sometimes you have to call out when something is perhaps fabricated drama. Sometimes you have to call out when it's actually not your role to step in. Sometimes it's okay to be like, I think this is something for you to deal with, or this is, you know, and it's a tricky, I'm, I'm pausing here and I'm thinking for a second, 
because it depends on situation to situation, which is why this is, can be a tricky thing with these comfort tests. But I guess the, 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 the greater principle is similar to passing ability tests, whereas so you have to at least be aware of what reality is. Sometimes you call it out, sometimes you can't. It's great to demonstrate that you care, but it's also important that you don't collapse yourself or you don't, um, you're still the one holding the perimeter, right? And sometimes that means coming up with a solution. Sometimes that means directing the survival unit to what is right. And uh, this can be challenging because especially if you're with someone you really care about, which I hope is the case if you're in a relationship, uh, sometimes you do need to um, make decisions that are not comforting to her in the short term, but they're the right thing for the long term. Sometimes you need to tell a woman when she's, sometimes you need to tell a woman when she's being out of line, especially in these moments where she is essentially testing uh, and maybe she's challenging you or like something that I experienced uh, in earlier relationships, probably because of the fact that I was a little more insecure about my masculinity where a woman would say something kind of challenging my insecurity. And I don't think this was, and I used to get really angry, right? It's like, oh, I'm insecure about this stuff. Like, why would you poke this thing? It seemed really mean. I don't think these women were doing it on purpose with malicious intention. I think my earlier girlfriends, they, they maybe like subconsciously sensed that I had insecurity here and they wanted to make sure that I was secure enough for them to let their guard down. So going back to our very first principle here about like, demonstrating our first how-to, if you will, about demonstrating the warrior ethos is the more you're living your life as a strong and able man, the less she'll have to test you, right? She'll still test you. I mean, if she's a high value woman, she'll test you sometimes, right? Just to make sure that you're not getting soft. But the more you demonstrate strength in your in your day-to-day -day life, the less you will feel insecure about whether she can let her guard down around you and the less she'll have to test you. But if she does test you, don't get butt hurt, right? Don't be like, oh, sh women shouldn't test me. It means, I, you know, a lot of guys get upset because they recognize that they've demonstrated weakness and that's why she, they're getting tested in the first place. Not always, but sometimes. It's better to recognize, and actually, in a sense, even though it requires a humbling of the ego, to be a little grateful and be like, okay, my woman is exposing a hole in my game. This is something for me to work on. Maybe you still need to call her out. Maybe you need to call her out on being unreasonable with her challenge. You know, this is something that has happened in my relationship where like she will throw something back at me as if I did something wrong. And and in the past, I would be not secure enough to recognize like, oh, did I do something wrong or not? But sometimes I have to tell her like, no, that's actually unfair. or This is actually untrue or this is actually reality. And I'm not always perfect at this, but I do my best to not say it as a reverse accusation attacking her because then we're just attacking each other back and forth. Sometimes you just need to put your foot down and say, well, that's just not true. And um, there's all of this again to have the, the purpose of this is not to like be the most alpha guy who dominates his woman all the time or like, you know, is somehow, you know, whatever. Uh, it's not about being a douchebag. This is about creating a healthy interdependent sexual dynamic. Whereas if you're a masculine guy, if you're a guy who naturally feels better embodying these testosterone-driven characteristics, you're probably attracted to women who are more happy in feminine in their feminine side. Although sometimes they need to be uh, sometimes they need to be guided into their feminine, because as we've discussed through this episode, it's actually a rational thing in the modern era for a lot of women for women to have a strong masculine side. It's kind of necessary for them to survive because we're all individual consumerist units. But in your love relationship, in intimacy, in sex, uh, 
you can't let that continue, right? You're not, no one's winning by uh, being androgynous or not having polarity. In intimate relationships, always increase polarity as long as it's not at the expense of well-being or any, anybody else. So that is all. If uh, this is something you want a little more hands-on help with, uh, the Mask and Archetype Challenge still comes with a free coaching session with me. So if you uh, want to join the challenge, it's still available at ruando.com slash archetype. There's more information about the curriculum. It's a program that I really enjoy. It's actually, I created it because I took a lot of exercises that I give my one-on-one -on -one coaching clients, put it in there because I realized, you know, yeah, I mean, I could just share with the world uh, all my grounding exercises, all my introspective exercises and stuff. And it's uh, the most cost-effective way to get a book a video call with me. So if you go to ronocom slash archetype, you can see the course curriculum. If you choose to join the program, you'll immediately get a link to my scheduler to book a coaching session with me. That is all. And if you're not in the Masculine Underground group, you should join. We have some great discussions there. And most of... Uh, a lot of my podcast topics actually come from questions in the group. So if there's anything you want me to talk about, anything you want me to expand on, join the group, post something, and I'd be happy to answer your question. All right. Goodbye. True.